are here in the 11FS office in London for episode 126 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Brave blasts past 10 million active users, German banks banking on crypto in 2020, and what will Jack Dorsey find whilst living in Africa? All this and much, much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by the returning Aman Kohli, CTO of Banking and Cap Markets at DXC. How are you doing, sir? Hey, Simon. How are you? I'm good. Not too bad. You're fresh from your debut on Fintech Insider and back on uh, Blockchain Insider. You're just spreading yourself around the, the podcast these days. You're a podcast uh, aficionado? Well, it seems to be, but, you know, keeping it real here okay. in BI, right? Indeed, indeed. And um, shout out to Jamie Bartlett. Thank you so much for being with us on last week's show. If you haven't heard that, do check out 125, where we did a special all about uh, all things, the case of the missing crypto queen and a deep dive into OneCoin. So check that out. Yeah, it sounds good. I'm, I have it on reserve for my Christmas listening. Oh, wow. I'm, okay. I'm going to... Can you box set podcasts, binge them? I don't know. That's what I'll be doing. I, I think if, with Blockchain Insider, you certainly can. Um, Alrighty, uh, before we get to the news, uh, 11FS are taking part in the 2020 British Banking Awards, and we need your help. Uh, we took home the 2019 Consultancy of the Year Award, and we'd love to get it for a second year running. And not just that, we're also taking part in a new award category called Pioneer of the Year, uh, which makes me think of the Wells Fargo sort of uh, pioneer wagon thing that they have, the Stagecoach. You ever seen that? I have. Unfortunately, when you said that, I immediately thought of a Monty Python song. So it's, okay, it, it well, might that be tells you a lot about a man, doesn't it? <laughs> hey, you're, you're, you're only one uh, surreal leap away to Monty Python. Uh, anyway, that, that's very true. And you're only one leap away from helping us out by heading over to bit.ly forward slash 11FS2020 to nominate 11FS for the Consultancy and Pioneer of the Year Awards. It would mean a lot to us. And Monty Python references everywhere. So uh, let's get on with the news. Uh, first story this week actually comes directly from Brave.com. And this is about Brave, the browser, passing more than 10 million monthly active users, which is a 19% growth since their one or launch. Um, and of course, um, Brave does use some blockchain goodness in the background. Uh, they, the article calls it a blockchain-powered web browser. And it's gone from 8.7 million active users in October to 10.4 million at the end of November. That's pretty fast growth, isn't it? Uh, month on month. Uh, it represents a doubling of their monthly active users in a year. And daily active users have actually tripled in the last 12 months. And Brave verified content creators have also grown significantly with nearly 340,000 creators on platforms like YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, websites, Vimeo, and GitHub. So, new browser. Who knew the world needed a new browser, Roman? Well, I think browser tech always shows this, that every couple of years you do need something new, and you do, do need something that is either addressing a technological need. So, Chrome came out and made things better, faster. Um, because we're in the dark days of Internet Explorer many, many years ago. Yeah, and even, even when IE came out, right, it actually... People forget this. It made things faster. Yeah, right? that was its its big thing, and it introduced plugins on a massive scale. Mm -hmm. I think where we are with Brave, and it's great to see this kind of developing, is um, it's dealing with this problem of how do you make money in a quote unquote free space, which is like a browser, mm -hmm. sustain development on it, um, and then maintain privacy. So Brave is doing it through the crypto side, through the kind of uh, monetization, uh, through that part of it, but it's also doing it by having a really good privacy and creating its own ad network. And anything that replaces ads, it's got to be good. Mm -hmm. 
are all for that, right? And the, the privacy conversation is arguably one of the big macro conversations in uh, Europe and the US, certainly post-Cambridge Analytica. The early zeitgeist user, the early adopter, um, the technical user is definitely starting to think a lot more about their operational security. Um, and whilst this might not be something that's mainstream, uh, those may have been the same people that adopted Chrome 10 years ago. So where they go, we can learn a pattern and we, we can get something from, from what they do. Yeah, absolutely. And it's quite interesting. There was a good piece on Daring Fireball yesterday about this. Um, uh, Gruber mentions a piece from The Information, which is paywalled around how Safari's uh, take on privacy, which is doing it from a different angle, yeah. right? So not from a new browser, but through really um, the current web standards and locking down privacy and what that's had an effect on. Yeah. And the the headline number is uh, Safari users uh, uh, are being presented with ads in ways that don't identify them, yeah. and the cost of going to them is 60% less than other browsers. Wow. Meaning you can't get the information you need as an advertiser. So... This is actually a good thing. It's protecting privacy. Yeah, and I think um, users are interested increasingly in protecting their privacy. But also, there's, there's a, as you say with the ad tech piece a moment ago, uh, that other angle of Brave is allowing the individual to monetize their own data. In, in other words, if I want to access content from a content creator, I can do that by uh, being served an ad in a way that protects my privacy, but I'm being served an ad that's relevant to that content creator. Or... I can simply do a microtransaction, and this is where their, their blockchain component and their tokenization of their basic attention token creates a way that globally, at scale, um, we could potentially look to see micropayments inside of a browser context. So this is, what, what struck me about this is, people always say, when blockchain, when crypto, this just seems like one of those things whereby like ne people never asked well, they sort of did, but people asked when cloud, but then they just started using Netflix. When cloud, but then they just started using Instagram. And they didn't connect the two that you know, cloud-based platforms had made these businesses much cheaper to build and able to scale. And then blockchain and DLT behind the scenes has made something like Brave much more possible, but you're not necessarily connecting the dots. It just feels more secure and it's, it's more in my interests. And, and that, to me, solves like it's solving a real consumer problem. It is. And again, with the privacy side of it, it is experimenting on different models. So Brave, for example, will let you run against a Tor network. Um, but the downside as well, because of that feature, is it's not corporation friendly. Mm. And some of the things around um, the attention token and that haven't been fully understood by corporations on how they can use it. So right now, there's a lot of blockage happening. Um, but can you think of other examples where corporates didn't know how to use a new technology? Shall I get my notebook? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, there, there, there are lots of examples of that. And the solutions that have come out have always been innovative. Mm -hmm. So I remember as mobile rose and social media rose, initially it was all blocked by large corporates. And I, I worked in a very conservative bank. But the way they dealt with it was they created employee networks disconnected from the main networks to allow you to interact with your social media mm -hmm. and the external full-on internet with certain controls and kept the corporate intranet. space free. Yeah. Well, no, no, you could still access the internet through it. right? But so intranets as well. And your intranets were free, but you couldn't access your social network, so information mm -hmm. wouldn't be leaked. You had to use your own device, but connected to a mm -hmm. company-supplied network to do what you need to do, post that wonderful tweet, listen to that wonderful podcast, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there are some wonderful podcasts out um, that, that are a part of the uh, 11FS network. Um, so 
There was an interesting nugget here that um, I think one of our producers has spotted, um, which is um, they're actually advertising on Joe Rogan's podcast. I'm going to guess that's going to be Petrit that got that one. Um, yeah, I'm seeing nodding from the producers. Um, so there's that interesting space of this person that's concerned about privacy um, that lives in that sort of vice media, apolitical world of like they don't really identify with the old left-right um, kind of politics of, of sort of a couple of decades ago that are privacy first. And I don't know that um, that's really understood um, in many, many levels. And things like Brave are a part of that zeitgeist changing. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think one of the things that doesn't get reported about Brave is how quickly it's experimenting Mm -hmm. and iterating and trying new features out while it's getting more and more users. Indeed. All right. Um, well, let's keep watching Brave um, and see you know, from 10 million where next. Because uh, if I look at Wikipedia, uh, it certainly looks like Chrome has you know, 64 to 65% of the market. Safari's got about 15%. Um, Firefox has about 4%. And then you've got a long tail of which you know, 10 million doesn't even get you in there. But uh, if they're growing at that month on month, it might be a matter of time. It is. And you know, the other thing is they, they are built on Chromium. So mm-hmm. hopefully there are some features that are coming down. I haven't seen the commit logs, but that, that might be something worth looking at So they would appear as, well. as Chrome to um, stats counters and, and other things? No, no. So let's just say uh, Brave introduces a feature uh, around privacy. It could be submitted upstream, right? Yeah, it could um, go the other way. This at, could be like a, a, a dev sort of area for the mainstream browsers. Yeah, and, and we can see where that ends up. And, you know, ultimately what's happening is you're, you're seeing Google having to address this issue head on. Indeed. All righty, we'll keep watching it. Next story comes from Coindesk.com, and this is about SEC revealing Telegram's communications with investors uh, seeking to question advisor. So the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission wants Telegram's former chief investment advisor to testify and hand over documents related to the company's $1.7 billion 2018 token sale. Um, the agency is seeking to halt the launch of TON, uh, T-O-N, which is Telegram's... and ambitious blockchain project and the issuance of ton tokens named grams which always sounded weirdly dodgy to me like some sort of yeah i'm seeing nodding in the room um I guess, so stepping back, uh, if you're not familiar, if you live under some sort of rock and you listen to this podcast, Telegram, of course, is the chat application. Uh, It's been around for some time, competes with uh, WhatsApp, Signal, and many other things like it. Um, And then they were launching this token um, as a way of creating an economy inside of their chat application uh, to compete with the likes of a WeChat who already have an ecosystem of doing those sorts of things. But it seems to that the SEC doesn't like it. Yeah. And I, I think uh, the SEC seems to be approaching this as a first of the kind to say, we're going to see a lot more of this happening. So let's figure out how to deal with it from the Telegram point of view. I mean, $1.7 we'll billion dollars was a massive token sale. There were one or two bigger. Famously, EOS raised nearly $4 billion, yeah. but EOS seemed uh, a lot more cooperative with the SEC and and, uh, and reached a settlement, whereas uh, famously Telegram came out and said the opposite. They were going to fight the SEC and they were going to push all the way. And um, maybe this is one where uh, the SEC is looking to make an example and set some precedents, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the ultimate thing about what the SEC is trying to do is it's trying to keep market activity free from interference, mm. which is one of the things that can be hard to understand when you see decisions it makes and postures it takes. But what what they see is uh, capital markets operating in unencumbered manners. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess the reason for looking at what Telegram has done is how does this fit into 
that kind of view? You know, has there been some sort of overselling on one side? Has there been other concerns? Um, was there equal access been given to this or was it only offered to certain people? Mm. Um, so th there, there are a few angles. And then, you know, what's being done with the money? How's it going to be done? You know, so this is the main reason why a drug dealer can't float on NICE. Right? Yeah, because they, they can't sell their grams on the New York Stock Exchange. Well, though they do sell them there, I guess. Uh, but yeah, um. <laughs> That's a very good point. Um, well, we'll come back to where this leaves the, the banks in a second, but I just got to get to our and read really quickly. Uh, this episode is brought to you by R3, and R3 developed Corda, and Corda is known for its enterprise-grade privacy, security, scalability, and interoperability. And because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries, in particular financial services, it can be used by firms of any type, size, or industry. With Corda, every business in every industry can leverage the power of blockchain. A free trial of Corda Enterprise is available at r3.com. Head on over to check it out. All right, on with the show. All right, the next story comes from The Block. Uh, with Parliament approval, German banks to sell and custody crypto in 2020. Interesting. Uh, so German banks will soon be able to sell and safe keep cryptocurrencies under a new law, according to a report by the German newspaper Handelsblatt. Uh, coming into effect on the 1st of January 2020, under a final version of the law, financial institutions will be able to custody cryptocurrencies themselves after procuring proper licenses. Uh, the German newspaper also cited financial experts Niels Nauhaus' worries that consumers may be allured to banks uh, to invest in cryptocurrencies without understanding the risks and consequently losing in their investments. But custody doesn't mean banks are selling the uh, crypto assets necessarily, does it, Aman? It just means that they're potentially holding they're just them on behalf. Yeah, I'm looking after it for a friend, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, what, what's interesting about this one is it's coming it at it a little bit from the institutional side, yes. so the bank's doing it, but with a view on consumers. And I think if we see what's happening in Europe in general, so Germany and Switzerland in particular, they are wholeheartedly embracing this segment of, um, I guess, the next type of thing coming out of financial services. Do you think the the, the U.S. and the U.K. and and uh, other you know sort of financial centers risk being left behind from you know even if if Germany arguably quite a conservative regulatory market is making moves like this? Yes, and that's probably one of the politest things ever said about the German regulator. Mm. Um, so there is a concern, right? That you know, as this area grows, will this capture more flow for the German FS sector? than, say, Brexit would. You know, um, there's there's a view that Brexit, everyone's going to decamp to Frankfurt. Mm -hmm. Well, if if there's a lot of growth in crypto assets and Germany is a one-third player or one-tenth player, yeah. it, that's going to have a significant impact to its experience. Because the custom here is not really necessarily consumers by the looks of it. There's definitely an attempt by the um, the regulator to ensure that it doesn't get seen as a as a go ahead, all guns blazing, like yeah. go ahead, and consumers can buy this stuff, which I think is really important because there is a real concern about consumer protection that seems to come from all global regulators consistently. But it, there's a whole community now of small hedge funds, single family officers, multifamily officers, uh, who you know trade over the counter and look a lot like financial institutions, albeit on a smaller scale. And the likes of Fidelity have started to look at crypto custody and life cycle management. So there are some big players there, but also Coinbase offering, and there are many, many others who do. So for banks to be able to play in that market, 
it starts to look like what they already do in the world of financial services, but with new a new technology and a new asset class. It's not that far away from what they already do, albeit there's some learning. No, it's not. And you know the the danger is they make something like this look like something like that. And yeah. You don't want that, right? I I think to your point that you're seeing a lot more sophisticated uh, private capital mm-hmm. coming into investment, and it is going down this route. So you know, in the past we've spoken about you know how does uh, collateralization happen and how does syndication of loans happen and you know, um, R3 is doing a lot of good work in this space as well. You can imagine a few family offices or hedge funds or private wealth funds uh, agreeing to uh, syndicate, uh, to, f- to fund a loan syndication, and that somehow gets turned as effectively a token or a crypto asset. Then how does that get managed, run, mm-hmm. and all of that good stuff? Because it's one thing to take this thing that was a piece of paper and turn it into something that looks like a digital token. Lovely. That sounds great. Um, But then how do I manage that once I've done it is a much bigger question. And actually, um, if I've done it, there's ways I do it when I'm doing it with paper. But this technology is different, so it creates a whole bunch of new questions that that need to be thought through in the context of regulation, investor protection, uh, securities laws, etc. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, also, you know, where does the money go? How do you manage the money is part of it. Uh, A large part of right now in securities, for example, is... um, how do you pay out when the security changes hands? So you might be my custodian and I hand you, you know, here's my 10,000, 10 million pounds worth of the security or the share or something. You look after it for me. That money changing hands and that asset changing hands is quite an orchestrated thing. It is. This is a weird little dance. But it's also orchestrated but not particularly efficient. And people don't realize, that I think, the cost of those efficiencies. Uh, sometimes I think Oliver Wyman did a study that said there's at least $30 billion of costs that could be attacked in uh, in banking across the you know the top 20, top 50 banks globally that, that operate in this space. I mean, that's a massive cost saving yeah. for some of the big banks. I mean, absolutely huge. But also that cost gets passed on to all of us in society because – they will, you know, these banks try not to lose money. They've got to cover their costs. So if they reduce their costs, then you and me end up with better financial services. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, again, how does this impact us as a consumer? Well, it impacts us as kind of working people in that that's how our pension funds are invested. But there, there's a separate argument on taking cost out of uh, financial services. One is you just deal with this piecemeal way like this, yeah. or you take a holistic view of it and just take out huge swathes of unnecessary yeah. components. And uh, whenever there's a lot of people to coordinate, things get hard. It's like uh, organizing parties for thousands of people. When you've got lots and lots of banks, lots and lots of intermediaries, this stuff just is hard. In lots and lots of countries, this stuff just is hard. Speaking of countries, um, next story comes from ambcrypto.com, and this is China beginning phase two of the digital yuan rollout. You won? Never know how to say that. One? No, it's. I don't think it's South American, so it's you won, I think. Apologies to uh, our Chinese listeners. Um, and anybody who works in FX, clearly I've not dealt with that currency pair before. Um, China is beginning what could be the second phase of rollout for the digital one, um, and Yuan, sorry, um, with capital controls being piloted in three provinces in the country. The second step towards digitization and the eventual introduction of the anticipated digital uh, currency could be issuing a digitized version of national identity cards. Uh, as an important precursor for the digital currency is the need for digital identity, and China has now begun that process. Um, not a great surprise, So, but let's step back from this. Why, why do I need a digital identity so that I can have a digital currency? Well, 
you don't need a digital identity for digital currency. Mm. You do need a digital identity to support digital money. And uh, this is a real kind of splitting the hairs here. No, but I think so, it's a fair point, right? Because if if I want to make sure that you really have that money, you were supposed to have that money, and you didn't try and send it out of the country, then I need to know a little bit about you, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if, if we look at the problem of digital identity separately, so India is a great example of this with UPI. They've created a digital identity that allows you to participate within the financial sector. Mm-hmm. Um and it doesn't necessarily impose any guardrails on what that participation is. Um, just reading this article, what it looks like uh, the Chinese government is doing is they want to tie the identity to the usage directly mm. and then put guardrails around that. Because it's interesting that sort of this could be digital cash on one level. So my understanding is that this would operate through banks, the, the DCEP, I think it's called. Um, and what a bank would do is they would deposit um, collateral at the central bank, and in return they would get these tokens, and then people with wallets could move that around as if it were, were quasi-cash. But what the uh, central bank, and I think the, the Chinese state wants to ensure is, sure, but so long as our existing rules get followed. Yes, yeah, so... I think there's always a caveat here when the Chinese central government's involved, not to get overly political, mm-hmm. but their views to a functioning financial economy, participating in a world economy, are different to how other countries would look at participation, mm-hmm. both in country and out of country. And you know, a lot of innovation we've, we've seen come out of China in fintech, it hasn't come out of government, it's come out of private sector. And mm-hmm. then the regulators followed. So... Um, whenever the regular tends to get involved in these sort of regimes, they tend to do it for more control. It's interesting that uh, we, yeah, that typically private sector goes and builds something and the Chinese state has been very, very good at containing that and driving it to its own direction. But um, Chinese state-funded entities or state-owned entities are not known as bastions of efficiency and uh, kind of well-run organizations. So, um, yeah. and, and indeed, around the world, sort of central government-managed stuff is very rarely held up as being the most efficient um, by, oh, you know, there are a number mm-hmm. of examples, of course, like the the Swiss railways and, um, and whatever else. But... Uh, it's very very rarely seen as that. So is is the fact that this is coming from a central bank directly and being developed and engineered by them rather than a private sector actually something that makes it a bit less likely to succeed? So I I think there will be digital money in China. I think it will be a digital crypto. I think it will work for what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's something that we would necessarily want to see replicated mm. um, just because of the sort of controls they're talking about. Because the, the whole point of it, if you look at it right now, if you have a sack of cash, even within tough environments, you can do things with it that aren't going to be tracked. And if you suddenly have every penny tracked. monitored and tracked by uh, a government who is keen on intrusion, um, it's going to change what can be done and where you need to get permission to do things. I think there's something in the money uh, money with memory and money with um, kind of that you can automate and programmable money that's really, really appealing to lots of different parties for lots of different reasons. Yeah. And if I'm the Chinese state, programmable money that doesn't let me do certain things if I've not followed the rules is really appealing. Um, but actually, if I'm, uh, let's say, um, a, a Western government and I know that I have to deal with a massive administrative burden and I, it's really hurting the economy, that sales tax um, is being dealt with and it's always dealt with after the fact. So you walk into a store as a consumer and you don't feel it. But if you run a small business and you're 
know, or accountant is dealing with sales tax, oh my goodness, just trying to keep up with all of those transactions, report them to HMRC, get the refunds, and the same in the US and the same in lots of other parts of the world. So if I could spend at the point of sale and all of that was figured out for me, That'd be pretty cool. So there, there are. It's not always um, the idea of money. Programmable money itself isn't the problem, but programmable money that requires uh, or assumes there's no such thing as cash could be a problem. Absolutely, absolutely. And 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 the whole thing about anything going digital, whether it's through cryptocurrencies or or digital money, it's not that you want to lose some of the features of cash and whether it's visibility or control. Um, it's you want to make it generally better for yeah. all within the ecosystem. And to your point, right, when you go and you buy that product at the, at the till or you buy that piece of factory machinery, wouldn't it be nice if that little bit of a sliver just got put aside or went towards a, a, a withholding tax or something yeah. like that, right? And I think... A looking a lot of people look at the payment system and see a lot of inefficiencies and looking for those solutions makes sense. But it's interesting that you can have a really efficient system if you massively centralize it, and that's what we're sort of seeing in China. Um, and so uh, I contrast this with something like Brave, which is kind of coming from the opposite direction, which is consumer-focused privacy, uh, you know, operational security or OPSEC. There's, there's kind of these different movements playing out, and it makes for an interesting time. Well, would you see something like a WeChat Pay or an Alipay you know, for projecting, right? Not not a direct analogous, but WeChat Pay and Alipay got created for a certain need. And would you see something like that occurring if you had something like this? So I don't mean literally another WeChat Pay, but something that addresses a problem mm -hmm. on that scale. And I think that's what we got to look at. Alrighty. Um, next story comes from DeutscheBurst.com. Uh, so Commerce Bank, Credit Suisse, and UBX, UBS even, execute the first live transactions on the Deutsche Börse HQ LAX securities lending platform. Um, before I read the story, yeah, I mean, your Thanks. eyebrows just moved. Uh, remind everybody who Deutsche Börse is for those of you that don't work in capital markets. Yeah, th think of them as a stock exchange in uh, Germany. But yep. stock exchanges in 2019 are very different mm. to uh, what we think of a bunch of men in, in funny vests shouting numbers at each other. Yeah, They're when you see those pictures of the New York Stock Exchange, actually what you're seeing is a trading floor that's kind of almost theater, that so much yeah. of it's happening behind the scenes these days. Absolutely, and, and the sort of assets that get traded right now are more than stocks and shares. They're... There are things like syndicated loans, or there are things like currency swaps. They're a lot more advanced than just you know a, a portion of Volkswagen. So what they've done is they've launched a jointly developed DLT solution that allows for frictionless collateral swaps in the securities lending market. So collateral swaps, securities lending. Who wants to do securities lending, and why would they want collateral swaps? Yeah. So you know, if we deal with the collateral swap first, that's about swapping a liquid asset say, cash, for an illiquid one, let's say a bar of gold. Why might I want to swap fee. cash for gold? So I might have a risky currency, yeah. or um, you might be offering me a good deal. Mm -hmm. So if I, if I fund your venture and I give you cash, right, and something like that. So mm -hmm. there are certain use cases where you want to do that. And then by moving it into something illiquid, like a piece of gold or a big building, right? So I want to yeah. invest into a building. And uh, it's part of a collateral, uh, a syndicated scenario where they need to raise 100 million pounds. Yeah. I'm giving you 10 million pounds. I'm swapping Collect. something liquid for something illiquid or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. um, that's one thing. And then the other part is high quality is uh, these are things that you know about. So mm -hmm. it could be 
bits like commodities, mm-hmm. could be bits like real estate, but it wouldn't be things like um, options on crypto assets. Indeed. Um, and then collateral swaps have a lot of friction in them. So like, where are the big points of friction? Well, w- one is actually getting the collateral and the swap itself, agreeing the value, mm-hmm. and then uh, trading those uh, on an exchange would be the big points around that. Um, and then the whole thing we were talking about earlier, just around if there's any custodian issues around it, if there's any sort of settlement issues around that. So the whole kind of life cycle of a uh, collateral swap or this instrument uh, is pegged with inefficiency and uh, risk mitigation. Yeah. And and some of that is going to be commercial, right? So you're never going to get away from people wanting to argue and get their bit of the deal and to, to get their bit of leverage in a contract. But historically, we've seen a number of times people have like standardized collateral contracts and standardized different types of um, contracts uh, throughout financial markets to reduce the variability in them. Um, and it's always going to be sort of uh, the market benefits when we reduce variability, but I benefit in this one particular deal if I can increase variability. But generally, the market tries to push costs out. So it's interesting that this is like um, Deutsche Börse, again, in Germany, generally considered, I would argue, one of the more um, sort of conservative financial market infrastructure players and, and exchange players out there. But this is this is a significant transaction. So tell me why you think, uh, why your eyebrows nearly flew off your face when you saw this headline. It, it, it had so many adjectives. Uh, my, my, my face just kind of went whatever. Right? Yeah. But um, I, th- I think they've hit the right asset class here in collateral swaps. I think, you know, if if you turn back a few years, uh, Deutsche Börse and the London Stock Exchange were going to merge Mm -hmm. uh, to create a European powerhouse. Um, They're complementary businesses and um, they're operating in areas of the market. It's kind of like what what I've said on previous shows as well. Um, The way money is forming right now is changing. Mm -hmm. So these are the sort of flows that are supporting more private equity or private investing mm-hmm. and less of the public. Public money is still mm-hmm. there, but there's been so much wealth outside of that and so much flow outside of that that in order to grow a business, you've got to tackle these other sorts of things. These other other spaces. Yeah. yeah. And then again, this is this is a good combination of banks, right? Commerce Bank, two Swiss banks. And um, I think HQLAX is... Uh, Swiss as well. Yeah, indeed. And they uh, they use R3's quarter behind the scenes, so shout out to those guys. But yeah. um, of course, um, then London Stock Exchange has a, a, a similar but different focus with what they're doing with Navora. And Navora is Ethereum-based. So interesting to watch these things play out. Do you think like doing a, a live transaction, doing one live transaction, we're going to start to see drips and drabs of volume coming? Because we, we see a lot of people going, we did a transaction, and it's like... Yeah call, but it was one transaction. When do I see more than that? Well, it's the driving analogy, right? Yeah. I drove to school, but I didn't drive back. Yeah. Right? You're, when you see the volume hitting here and when you see commitments around it, to do something once, it's great. Uh, you but, proved it could be done, and I think that's nice, But like, and you proved that there was value in doing it, but now the hard work just just beginning. Yeah, adoption is always harder than the first execution. But do you think, uh, if you're sitting in uh, the, uh, I guess you're the chief operating officer of big bank in Europe, are you going to look at this and go, crap, all my competitors are going to run at this? Or do you think, where do you think this ranks in the scale of like operational woes for um, a COO or a CTO? I think this comes in reasonably okay as something that gets solved. Like, as I say, this isn't, it's a reasonable problem Mm -hmm. that needs to be solved. Um, and 
those who are using this product understand the inefficiencies. So it's not like when I'm buying as when I re, as a retail so it solves consumer. A real problem. It solves a real problem that needs solving. So if I if I'm buying stocks and shares as a as a regular consumer, I don't really know yeah. what goes on behind the scenes. You don't know all of the inefficiency that you end up paying for another way. So your pension doesn't grow as fast as it could because there's all of this efficiency in there that you're losing in fees. But if you're in this level of the market, you really know about all of that inefficiency. You do. And what you want to do is you want to get a clearer way of tracking what's happening and and what products like this offer people in capital markets is a neat way of tracking what's there and then trading what's there and getting into and out of whatever you're doing. This happens to be a swap, yeah. so it gets you into and out of a swap market better and more efficiently than an alternative. How would the front office view this aside from the CEO or CTO? Is it just an efficiency play or is there more there, do you think? I think it's a useful thing, yeah. right? So efficiency is a big thing because it it's, you know, we spoke about attention economies earlier. Mm-hmm. Imagine for a front office trader, your attention is now mm-hmm. being able to move on to something else or use this better and you're not managing the paperwork. Yeah, you're not spending all way. of your time. And so many people that work in front office roles spend most of their time forcing things through the system and dealing with admin rather than scaling the amount of transactions that they could be doing and, and scaling the amount of business they can do. Um, because the... The, the product engines and the configuration and the ability to do the deal. It's like, uh, it, it feels to me like uh, there's a lot of customization on every deal and then there's a lot of working it through the pipes and plumbing. Whereas what you really want to be able to do is understand your client, understand their problem, create the deal, have the tools to be able to create that. And there are some interesting platforms out there that allow you to create the contract from fairly simple templates. But Beyond that, it's really what happens beneath it and the connectivity between creating the deal and the deal being driven through that's where they're missing. Yeah, and you know, remember, everything like this, especially if a bank is involved in it, it has an impact on what they're being regulated to do. Mm-hmm. So if they are buying one end of the swap, they suddenly then have to report, give a risk report on it, and that affects their position in the market. They may Indeed. need to be covered on some more liquidity. So... Because the the posture of regulation is changing, um, you need to have these things in a more computable fashion to drive better, um, I guess, uh, risk reporting as well or regulation uh, coverage. Interesting times. Alrighty. Well, the last story this week comes from The Block, and this is about Huabi um, joining China Telecom and finance giants to form a state-backed blockchain alliance. Uh, announced on the 1st of December, the Chinese branch of cryptocurrency exchange Huabi is one of the first members of the Blockchain Services Network, or BSN. These all sound like weird television um, networks to me. Yeah, I, I seem to remember BSN being an acronym for a sci-fi uh, show version of CNN. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think and so. It has that feel to it. And, uh, and of course, it's an, an industry alliance initiated by the State Information Center, SIC, which, again, I found amusing because it was in brackets. Um, in addition to Wobby, the uh, alliance has also recruited China's equivalent to Visa, of course, China Union Pay, uh, state-backed telecom giants, China Mobile and China Telecom, um, and China Merchants Bank International, and, of course, Tencent-backed. WeBank. Um, according to the report by Xinhua News, BSN enables to provide a blockchain infrastructure services platform that bridges different blockchain networks, regions, and institutions. Go back to what we were saying about their identity scheme. Go back to what we were saying about their, their payments thing. Things are moving in interesting ways, and this seems like Huobi is kind of in the conversation a little bit. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like they're trying to solve a cross-border problem, mm-hmm. which, which is never a bad thing. 
I think a few years ago, we were very much concerned with interledger protocols, mm-hmm. um, with the way work has been going on in distributed ledger, is they've been focused very much on higher level use cases, like the HQLAX, what a great name for something, mm-hmm. uh, uh, is doing. And so these sort of networks capture those higher level things a lot better. Busy few weeks for blockchain in China. Well, I'll tell you what, they'll be getting good Christmas bonuses if they got Christmas bonuses. Indeed. Um Let's let's hope they do. All right, some stories we didn't have time to cover um, in the last two weeks, so there's quite a few here. Uh, there was a story on CoinDesk about the backed CEO would be asked to fill the Georgia Senate seat in 2020. Um, CCN, crypto developers arrest for aiding North Korea echoes eerily prophetic 2008 New York Times profile. Um, Watford FC um, have announced that Bitcoin has been confirmed as their new sleeve partner. Um, So it tells you a lot about where uh, Bitcoin's been sold. Um, Consensus, how Ethereum will create an open financial ecosystem with new financial assets and protocols. This is a a piece about, uh, I think, everything that's coming in ETH 2.0. Story in the New Yorker, cryptocurrency 101 in the South Bronx, a typical New Yorker um, kind of piece there. Uh, Coindesk.com, talk about uh, China's internet firewall has blocked access to Ethereum's block explorer, etherscan.io. Mm. And crypto news, eToro confirms working on a debit card. Support for which crypto is yet unclear. There's lots of debit cards out there. Does anybody use those things? Anywho, now it is time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Twitter of the Week comes from the one and only Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey, who has the handle at Jack. I wonder how he got that one. Um, So uh, his tweet reads, Sad to be leaving the continent for now. Africa will define the future, especially the Bitcoin one. Not sure where yet, but I'll be living here for the next three to six months in mid-2020. Grateful I was able to experience a small part. Square have gone deep, deep, deep on crypto, haven't they? Yeah, they have. And, you know, Square's biggest market is uh, the small, medium businesses on the small side. And, you know, Africa and a lot of his tweets I saw, they were from Ethiopia. So East Africa has brought us, you know, the the biggest uh, innovations in fintech. And they've been servicing small, medium businesses. So this this all seems to make sense, aside from the fact Africa is very large, vast. There are different needs. Yes, there's, there's, let's not forget it's not one place. It's fifty something. So yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that aside, but um, fintech has been growing throughout the whole region. But you know what's happening in Nigeria is very different to what's happening in Sub-Saharan Africa, which is very different to what's happening in Kenya with M-Pesa, which yeah. is very different to South Africa, which might as well be sort of a country in the West in some parts, but also really not in other parts. Yeah. It's, um, there's there's so many different things that, that, are, that are happening and so many nuances. But I, I wonder if he's, he's pointing at a few things. People always talk about crypto as the great financial includer, as, uh, as swift for everybody else, as the internet of money, and that um, there are some real, real problems to be solved for people who just don't have basic access to financial services or payments or, or that sort of thing. And uh, we've seen the mobile telecoms operators get some of the way there, um, but there's a whole bunch of people that they don't solve for. Um, Jack Dorsey has a unique combination of skills. He, he With Twitter, he was able to create you know, a, an internet behemoth around conversation and data. Um, with Square, he really under, deeply understood payments and the merchant experience in the small business side. Um, put those things together... And, you know, is this just the classic sort of um, Maslow's hierarchy um, entrepreneur with a lot of money went to Africa? Or do you think there might actually be some some depth to this? I, 
I think there is depth, um, despite his weird sort of beard that he's been sporting, I guess, in the uh, in some of the hey, tweets. Hey, there's nothing wrong with a weird beard. Well, you know, I I can't comment on that, but um, I think he puts a lot of thought and consideration on what he does, and um, tackling what the needs of business owners in Africa, and if it's East Africa, in the first instance, great, mm. because uh, you know, to our earlier point, the more and more things are done by state or large corporations, the less and less access is made to those who actually need it more. So why did M-Pesa succeed? Well, it succeeded because it was open access to everybody. But why didn't M-Pesa succeed everywhere? Yeah. Is because you required quite a lot of state cooperation and quite a lot of large corporation cooperation. And if you sidestep that by using an open network where all you need is basically a WhatsApp or HTTPS client, you're opening up a lot of Opportunity. Which comes to the Libra thesis, which I, I think they're genuine when they say they wanted to look at financial inclusion as a big part of their mandate and solving for, for markets where people may have WhatsApp, but they don't have a bank account. People may have WhatsApp, but they don't have a national identity. So what tools can I give people and what tools can entrepreneurs in regions start to use and, and solve problems for themselves? And there are lots of informal community-based ways of solving these problems that exist in cash today. But as we know, having a lot of cash stuffed under your mattress can be a real security risk in, in, in a, in a a lot of countries in a lot of places. So how do you how do you actually manage that in different regions becomes interesting. At 11FS, we've done quite a bit of work in different African countries. We did some in Ghana, we've done some in South Africa, we've looked at Kenya, we've looked at different places. And the SME thing is one that comes up every single time as being a key area of like, how do you take the basic tools that are being managed informally via WhatsApp and plug that into a basic set of payment capabilities and then around that, things like payroll, around things like that, invoice management, uh, financing, all of that sort of stuff that could really unlock a lot of economic activity. Um, and so much of this as well is being driven, let's not you know, take a colonial view of it by any stretch, so much of it has been driven by entrepreneurs in region. And uh, kind of capitalizing on that that momentum is going to be really, really key. As, as we've seen with India, like so much of the innovation comes comes from, from the nation itself, not from entrepreneurs from elsewhere. Well, and that's the thing, like the venture scene in Africa is something else. I was at a Royal African Society meetup a while ago, and there was a lot of great fintech conversation happening there. Mm. And um, what people are doing uh, is addressing the needs that need to be addressed there. And, mm -hmm. you know, to your Libra point, uh, there was a lot of uh, negative reaction to that from uh, from African entrepreneurs mm. where they're saying, hold it, let us come up with solutions we Absolutely. need to. And Absolutely. they're right too. And, and, and if you look at it, right, um, Kenya, Uganda, they're doing so much work um, to build systems that are needed there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of my favorite stories about the Valley of Ampesa is from the central bank governor of Kenya. Um, the group were looking at the data on how Ampesa is used, and they noticed a very heavy usage around 5, 5.30 in the morning. And it turns out why it was being used is um, the small, medium business owners, who are also mothers, yeah. would wake up at five to go to a money lender to say, look, I just need to cover my cash flow. And then they would apply for the loan, their day loan. They'd get it. They'd get their family ready. And then they'd go to the market with their day loan. They'd buy the goods they need. And then by nine o'clock, their stall's open and they're selling. And the central banker said, no, this is crazy. We can't be doing this. We can't be forcing people to wake up an hour early 
just so that they can make ends meet mm-hmm. or thrive or whatever it is. So what can we do to do that? And that's that's the other side of data and data analytics. Mm-hmm. And that's the other side of things like open payment networks is that you can run these analytics that you don't get in cash, that you don't get mm-hmm. also in card networks. Absolutely. Um, sometimes having that data that public domain can be uh, a double-edged sword because it can also be an issue for privacy. But if it's managed the right way and it's anonymous, then actually that can be a good thing. All righty. Well, that wraps up this week's show. Just to remind you, of course, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS. And we're a challenger consultancy working to shape the uh, next generation of financial services and indeed change the very fabric of financial services through uh, helping people understand the uh, with content like this or with services and products such as 11FS Pulse and 11FS Foundry. Um, Aman, where can people find out more about you? Well, you can find me on Twitter, at A. Coley. Warning, that is really nothing professional going on there. It's just my opinions and everything like that. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, www.linkedin.com slash in slash Coley A. That's more grown-up me. And then my wonderful company, dxc.technology. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter, or you can email me directly, simon at 11fs.com. Big thank you, as always, to our amazing production team here at 11FS. Producers Laura, Petra, Hannah, Olivia, and, of course, Alex, superstar editor. See him in the corner, smiling at me. Go on. There it is. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll have much more Blockchain Insider next week. Bye for now. <laughs>